Okay, guys, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, Welcome back to another episode of The Graveyard Shift. I'm Samantha. I'm Jasmine. Today, we've got a wonderful episode three for you guys. We crunched and we crushed for this, for these notes today. I did, last week was Jasmine's week. I crunched and I crushed for these notes this week. (laughs) Boy, oh boy, did we get some content. But before we get into our fantastic content, I would like to let it be known that we are filming from about 320 miles apart. I'm in California. She is in Nevada. We are on our winter break from college. So I'm back home with my family. She's home with her family. And we are recording this over a video conferencing app. And I'm going to extract the audio, a whole bunch of stuff you guys probably don't care about. Okay. Yeah, it was not that important. <laughs> I'm just letting you guys know if the audio sounds different or it's weird and disconnected. That is why. Either. Anyways, let me pull up my notes because yeah, so this week is like last week's where I don't know anything about the story or who she's even doing it about. So let's get into Don't do that. Let's get into it. <laughs> Let's get into it. So this week we have a wonderful, wonderful story about the trials and tribulations of drinking Kool-Aid. That's right, folks. Yeah. That's that's right, folks. (laughs) This week we're doing Jim Jones and the People's Temple, otherwise known as the Jonestown Massacre. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's a good one. You know this one? Mm -hmm. It's good. I've been... I've been thinking about it for the last week, and I wasn't sure what I was going to do until like two days ago. Yeah, I know about it. I know li- no, I know a lot about it, but I don't know like the inner details about it. So let's get started. James Warren Jones, better known as Jim Jones, is born as an only child in Crete, Indiana, on May thirteenth, nineteen thirty-one. His parents were James Thurman Jones and Lynetta Jones. <laughs> also, I'm getting sick because it's the winter and my allergies. So. James Thurman Jones was a veteran of the Great War, a.k.a. World War I, uh, a victim of mustard gas, and was living on disability payments. He was also sinking into a deeper and deeper alcoholism. I saw in one account that he was also a mystic fortune teller. Homie was going through it. But then, but Jim Jones and his father have the same name. So it could have been what I was reading was about mm. Jim Jones, because I also saw that he was a mystic fortune teller. But it was underneath, like, the parents, like, like bio section of, like, what I was reading. So mm-hmm. I don't know who was a mystic fortune teller, but someone was. Lynetta Jones was a feisty, independent woman, and she worked odd jobs throughout the area as well. Lynetta was 17 years younger than James, her husband, that's too many years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wait, so how old was James? I think he was in his 40s. Oh. Uh, so, so she was adults, like late. She was like late 20s. Like she wasn't like a kid, but I think still. he was like 46 or something. Mm-hmm. That's still too much. Some people are like that today. That's true. Jim would later give an account saying that his father would beat him unmercilessly. Jim portrayed his father as a Ku Klux Klan member with a strong hatred toward blacks. 
Jim's father came from both Quaker and Baptist lineages. And I did some research because I don't know all the denominations of Christian. According to BBC, Quakers believe that there is something of God in everybody and that each human is and each human being is of unique worth. This is why Quakers value all people equally and oppose anything that may harm or threaten them. BBC also said they emphasize direct experience of God rather than ritual and ceremony. They believe that priests and rituals are an unnecessary obstruction between the believer and God. And that's just like a general overview. Anytime I get into like specifics of religion, it's going to be like a general overview. Mm -hmm. This is not based on the Quaker Oats guy. No. Which is what I wish it was. Quaker Oats. Quaker Oats. According to Britannica, Baptists insist that only believers should be baptized and that it should be done by immersion rather than the sprinkling or pouring of water. Most Baptist Protestants do not do infant baptism. Essentially, the main thing in Baptist beliefs is immersion. Immersion in the faith, immersion in the water, because you're getting baptized. However, Lynetta doubted a sky god and laughed at the idea that she was going to hell when her neighbors talked about her. Because, like, she, it was, like, if you weren't religious, it's, like, the 1930s. So, like, if you yeah. weren't religious, you are Satan himself. Hmm. Both of Jim's parents were absent, with his father being emotionally absent and his mother being physically absent because of work. He later told his congregation, I didn't have love given to me. I didn't know what the hell love was. That really doesn't mean anything, though. But you see it in a lot of, like... In a lot of cases where it's like there was either neglect as a child or like overwhelming presence of parents. Mm -hmm. And I think it's kind of interesting that we chose the two, like H.H. Holmes and Jim Jones kind of have that like father was an alcoholic. Yeah. And then they have like that onset of religion, except obviously Jim Jones is like a lot more. And I think it's like now I'm starting to see a pattern. Since Jim was born during the Great Depression, he grew up in poverty. He and his family ended up having to move to Lynn, Indiana, which was like right by Crete, Indiana. Mm -hmm. Indiana Jones. I keep thinking about Indiana Jones every time you say Indiana. <laughs> his last name is Jones, and he lives in Indiana. It's Indiana Jones. There's not a ton known about Jim Jones's early or childhood life outside of his personal recollections from later in his life. Yeah. He said, I was considered the trash of the neighborhood, but he would advocate with the underdog and help bullied kids in his neighborhood. I feel like some of it is very overdramatic. Yeah, he's a dramatic, because... he's a dramatic man. He would advocate with the underdog and help bullied kids in his neighborhood. He had a connection to animals and he was into communal living based on accounts of the early people he read about in the Bible, which is basically like all of them living together and like, think of like a commune. Mm. like that children in the neighborhood remember that jim would hold mock church services in his home a lot of these services were funerals for dead animals but there was so many animals that people began wondering where he got all the animals some speculating that he killed them himself and i think that's funny because he said he had a connection to animals yeah i wouldn't be surprised uh, Phyllis Wilmore, who would go on to date Jim in high school, said in regards to a pep rally that she had attended, Jimmy decided to stage an elaborate funeral for the other school. He got up and started preaching and did an incredible job. He had the control and inflection. 
It was like the real thing, but was all intended to be a joke. He was very self-assured on stage. He had that coal black hair and piercing eyes that would look right through you. This guy did a, performed a funeral what at a pep. He? he performed a funeral at a pep rally. The Bye. 1930s were such a random time. Who allowed all of this to happen? I don't know. I think it's the 40s at this point, but it doesn't like make it any better. Like time has passed. You don't need yeah. to perform. You don't need to perform a funeral at a pep rally. There's no need for it. There's no. What? Who died? <laughs> Who died? <laughs> The Ku Klux Klan was a heavy presence in Jim's life, and he later ended up advocating for black rights because of this racism he saw in his small town in rural Indiana. In fact, Jim and his father got into an argument about his father not allowing one of Jim's black friends to enter the house because his dad was, like, super racist. And Jim was, like, super, like, I love equality. In Lynn, Indiana, there were only about five churches. Jim, at one point or another, would attend all of these. He was just church hopping. He was going from church to church to church, and he was trying out. He was trying to make everyone like him. Probably, honestly. I think he was just obsessed with religion, and that was, like, his thing. And he's like, God. So he would go from, like, church to church to church and just, like, learn every religion. Yeah. Because why? Why would you do that? But, I mean, work. When his parents separated in 1948, Jim moved with his mother to Richmond, Indiana, and graduated from Richmond High School in December of 1848. At the time of his graduation, he had an interest and aptitude in medicine. Mm, Mr. H.H. H. Holmes. Mr. H.H. H. Jones. <laughs> what is it with these, like, everyone gets so into medicine in, like, high school, and they're like, I might just kill people. Anywho. Throughout school, teachers would say that Jim was quiet and focused on his studies, striving to make something out of himself because of his mother's wishes. Since he was an only child, his mother was like, you better make something out of yourself or I'm going to be super disappointed in you. And he was like, yes, I will do that. And so that was like his goal throughout high school was to get great grades so that his mother would be proud of him and wouldn't Mm -hmm. feel like wouldn't feel like let down because she only had the one son, and if he failed, what are we to do now? Yeah, that's a lot of pressure in a way. In Richmond, Jim encountered Pentecostal Christianity. According to BBC, Pentecostalism is a form of Christianity that emphasizes the work of the Holy Spirit and the direct experience of the presence of God by the believer. Pentecostalism is colorful, energetic, and dynamic, and its members are encouraged to believe that the power of God moves through them. Upbeat Christianity. Isn't it always supposed to be upbeat? I think so. But then you get to, like, the rapture. As a teenager, Jim worked in a hospital as an orderly. There he met Marceline Baldwin. Marceline was at least 20, on some accounts saying 22, whereas Jim was only about 16 when he started working there. They got married shortly after Jim turned 18. So she's minimum four, max, probably about, like, minimum four years older. she was 16? He was 16. She was 20 or, or like, 22. It was such so like, a great time. There was like a minimum four-year age gap, more likely a six-year age gap between them, which isn't that bad, but it's he's 16. Yeah, it's just not right. It's illegal. 
Duh. But it's not, like it's it's not just not right. It's illegal. But like morally, if like Yeah. Ew. Like, they haven't even fully developed yet. <laughs> that's like being a junior in college going after a junior sophomore. in high school. A sophomore or a junior in high school. Yeah, that's Marceline, by some accounts, had a compassion for other people with problems, and that compassion lasted throughout her life. She saw a tragic case and wanted to help them. Prior to their marriage, Jim spent some time at Indiana University in Bloomington. Then the couple later moved to Indianapolis, Indiana, where he attended Butler University. At Indiana University, Jim would often check in with his wife before making decisions. According to his freshman year roommate, Kenneth E. Lemons, she had become a mother figure to him. Maybe he just, like, craved the motherly attention because his mom wasn't always home. Maybe. So he needed, like, a substitute for that. Jim enrolled in Butler University in 1951, the same year that his father died alone in a hotel room from an attack due to his war injuries. I don't know what the attack was, but everywhere I said, it just said an attack due to his war injuries. Wait, maybe a heart attack. Repeat the sentence again. Jim enrolled in Butler University in 1951, the same year that his father died alone in a hotel from an attack due to his war injuries. Oh, yeah. Maybe. Maybe, yeah. Yeah. Maybe it was a heart attack, but it never said heart. It just said attack. Marceline and Jim got married in June of 1949, despite the marriage being extremely hard, especially for Marceline. She stayed with Jim until the bitter end. Together, they had one biological child together, Stephen Jones, who was born in 1959. Even though he only had one biological child, he and Marceline would go on to adopt many other children of many different ethnicities. He called it his rainbow family. Because he would adopt black kids, he would adopt Asian kids, he would adopt mm. white kids, he would adopt every, every kid. So he mm. called it his rainbow family. They adopted Agnes Pauline Jones in 1954, Lou Eric Jones, Stephanie Jones, and Suzanne O. Jones were adopted in 1959, prior to the birth of Stephen. In 1961, the couple adopted Jim Jones Jr. and Timothy Glenn Jones. Timothy Chalamet. Timothy Chalamet was adopted by Jim Jones. Timothy, if you're listening, I'm sorry that was a joke. He's not. <laughs> we have we have brought up Timothy Chalamet in two podcast episodes so far. No, it's only been three of them. There's only been three. The majority of podcast episodes we have mentioned Timothy Chalamet. Outside of him and his wife, Jim claimed to have been the father of a child by the name of John Victor with a woman named Grace Stowen, and also fathered a child named Jim John Chemo with a woman named Carolyn Layton, a member of the People's Temple. Carolyn? Carolyn? <laughs> After a while, Jim changed career goals from a doctor to a minister for the faith. For a couple of years, Jim was an assistant minister at Somerset Southside Methodist Church before he decided that he wanted to do more integrated services and that the church he was at was too traditional. Jim also pushed for the church to allow African-American members, but he was met with strong opposition. During his time preaching, he began observing rich people being deeply interested in faith healing and healing rituals. 
Shortly after, Jim began preaching to mostly African Americans in a rented church space. This was originally called Community Unity. That is so hard to say, and I thought I said it wrong for a second. Community Unity. This was originally called Community Unity, then the Wings of Deliverance Ministry, both forerunners to the People's Temple. He began performing extremely staged healing rituals, curing everything from eye problems to heart disease. No, he did not. Mm -mm. No, he didn't. Another water elixir. (laughs) (laughs) Another another tie to this H.H. Holmes guy. Throughout this, Jim was making money, but as a side business, he sold imported monkeys from door to door as pets to save up money to open his own church because he already had enough followers. Why did he sell monkeys? Where did he where did he get monkeys? How did you get your little clammy hands on some monkeys? Founded in 1956, the People's Temple started in Indianapolis, Indiana. He was inspired by the ideas of racial and economic justice in the community. In 1960, the People's Temple was categorized as a branch of the Christian Church, or Disciples of Christ. And by 1964, Jones was ordained. To boost his following, Jones bought time on a local AM radio to air his sermons. I'm not going to lie. He is very business savvy. He knows how he needs to get his followers. But then again, that's like a really common thread with cult leaders. They're like, I know what I'm doing. I'm charismatic and I'm going to get my way and I'm going to get people to listen to me, even Mm. though it's bullshit. Like that's their thing. Jones built his sermons based off of ministries in Philadelphia and New York. These places taught messages of equality. The ministry that was growing in New York and Pennsylvania was led by a Father Divine. Jones was enthralled by Father Divine's success in his ministry and made multiple trips to Philadelphia to go see Father Divine. During that time, Jones was recognized for his work with the homeless, later becoming the director of Indianapolis's Human Rights Commission in 1961, the same year Jim and Marceline adopted James Jones, Jin- James Jones Jr. That is so hard to say. As a director, he desegregated movie theaters, restaurants, hospitals, etc. Honestly... Down with segregation. Snaps to Jim Jones. But I don't, like I said with the H.H. Holmes thing, I don't want to compliment him. Because he is bad and awful. Yeah, this is a bad person. (laughs) He is a terrible person, but I mean, he's fighting for racial justice. In a way. In the beginning, at least. In the beginning, (laughs) it was all racial justice. In the end, it was all bad. (laughs) The People's Temple taught apostolic socialism and was influenced by a few Marxist theories used in Latin America. Big key parts of Jones's church style was faith healing and an enthusiastic worship similar to black churches. He also encouraged and invited people to live more communally. Despite being a very God-forward church, the teachings were more atheistic or, or agnostic and followed along the ideals of humanism, inspiring followers to believe that humans can reshape their reality if they see fit for mass benefit of all. The group's ideals were very utopianist in nature. They were to live away from the evil and injustice of the rest of the world. The temple ran a free restaurant and homes for the mentally ill and elderly. So at least they're still doing social good. 
Yeah. Jones's ideas were ahead of his time, and people on the street and in the community would spit at Marceline when she was walking or send letters to the Jones wishing for death to Jim Jones Jr., their son. They were wishing death on a child? Yeah, because Jim Jones was, like, pro-black rights. Back in the 1950s, that's not allowed. But the thing is, they're still threatening a kid. Yeah, exactly. Like, leave, leave the kid alone. Threaten the big guy. Leave the yeah. kid alone. What did the kid do? About this time, rumors were circulating around the town that Marceline was having an affair with one of the members of Jim's congregation. Jim confessed to a friend that he felt dirty for being intimate with his wife and carried a sense of guilt about the whole ordeal. He said that he vastly preferred having sex with a younger woman who he was able to dominate much easier. That is nasty. Leave... Leave the young people alone. Let them do what young people yeah, do. I mean, they're young people. Why do you need to feel like you need to dominate something? There was a lot going on in Jones's life due to being the director of the Human Rights Commission, having many children, and also running a full church. In 1961, he was hospitalized for a week, and in 1962, he went on hiatus from the church and moved his family to Brazil. Upon his return to Indianapolis in 1963, Jones was considering the dangers of the Cold War. He read in a copy of Esquire magazine a list of places that would be the safest in case of a nuclear attack. He announced this fear to his congregation, saying that the world would experience thermonuclear war on July 15, 1967. Jim took this to heart and moved his family and church to Northern California near Ukiah in Mendocino County. During or briefly before the move, Jones adopted the title the profit money <laughs> not that kind of profit damn <laughs> like p-r-o-p-h-e-t profit okay like, yeah. like like he's communicating with god and god is talking yeah. through him yeah. when they arrived in california the people who were already living there most of whom were black were shocked by the temple's arrival but later said they were good neighbors who worked hard and kept to themselves and didn't bother anyone yeah because didn't he say, like, the whole advertising was, you come here to live an equal life? Yeah, it's like, everyone? yeah, it's like, you're here for equality, you're here to live with everyone, you're here to coexist with everyone, all yeah. that. And yeah, and that's why, you know, a lot, not a lot of people, but some people did want to go for that reason, because they were yeah. tired of the segregation and all that. Yeah, especially, that's why he had a lot of black followers, is because he was mm -hmm. giving them equality and being, like, seen in, like, other people's eyes. Yeah. And they're like, I can't get that at a regular place, and I have to, like, hide away from people, and, like, I'm not allowed to do this, that, and the other. But, and I think that is a reason why this worked so well, because this guy is batshit crazy. Um, but... He was like, I'm giving you equality and we're all going to work together and we're all going to work hard. And they were like, okay, fine. I have to do a little yard work and I get to not be segregated against. Sounds good to me. Yeah. Jones eventually was appointed chairman of the county jury in 1966 due to his intelligence and soft-spoken way of talking. By the 1960s, Jones was preaching in San Francisco, trying to expand who his teachings were reaching. Preaching, teaching, and reaching, all in the same sentence. The tone of what Jim Jones was teaching to the congregations moved away from religion and closer towards politics with a strong influence from communism. Members would pledge not only their devotion to Jones, but their material possessions as well as money. So, 
And then he would say it was for the church and that everyone in the church would be able to use it and access it. But it was speculated that he was keeping some of like what they gate signed away to him for himself. That's where they call him the prophet. <laughs> <laughs> but the but the other kind of prophet. The P-R-O-F-I-T. <laughs> but like that was like where the communism came in is like, we'll pool all our resources together. Everything will be one. And then we'll all be able to take equal amounts from the pot. But then he was like, sticky little hands wanted a little bit more. In October of 1968, Timothy Stowen, a deputy district attorney and liberal Stanford University graduate, came to a sermon of Jones's, mostly because of Jones's emphasis on assisting the poor. The following year, Stone sold everything in order to join the People's Temple. Like, why? That is the thing with cult leaders, is that they can convince people to do anything. Yeah, they're manipulators. Jones was a master of manipulation and was able to bend his followers' minds to his will. A former member of the temple, Leslie Wagner Wilson, said, I thought he could heal because I saw healings and I thought they were real. He was a master of manipulation, but you saw him with this dark hair, the sunglasses, and the way that he spoke. He was a great orator, and it moved you. It inspired you because he was so passionate, and so I was just enthralled. Jones was also obsessed with power. He had his followers refer to him as father or dad and later yeah, began dad. to re- Papa. He had his followers refer to him as father or dad and later began to refer to himself as Christ. Now he's just doing too much. Oh, don't worry. It gets better. In the last few years of the People's Temples Run, I did that on purpose because I put Temples Run. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I, I love Temple Run. I fuck, with, I fuck with Temple Run heavy. Honestly, I do too. It's almost like as addictive as Subway Surfers. <laughs> it's more addictive than Subway Surfers. Those little skeleton monkeys chasing me. Oh boy, I love that shit. <laughs> and the music? Yes, ma'am. I haven't played in years. I gotta re-download it on my phone. I feel like a fake fan. But I do have pocket frogs, so... In the last few years of the People's Temples run, he called himself God. It doesn't work that way. Chill. (laughs) Jones told his followers that he was the only heterosexual in the world. He said that all other people were inherently homosexual in order to discourage his followers from having sex, but so that they didn't question whether or not he was allowed to have sex with the women of the congregation. Because there were all of them. How did they believe that? Around this time, Jim Jones grew a horrendous drug habit. Jones was taking copious amounts of drugs, both amphetamines and barbiturates. These drugs may have been to allow Jones to stay awake for longer periods of time, but eventually they caused mood swings and extreme paranoia. Mm. No longer worried about the nuclear war as much, Jones had a new fear that the whole government, both the CIA and the FBI, were after him. He said that he hated the president and loved people like Hitler and Lenin. Not John Lennon. He essentially went crazy. This fear caused him to move the People's Temple to Guyana in South America. In Guyana, Jones set up a relatively large agricultural commune called Jonestown. About a thousand people followed Jones to South America. 
Jones confiscated passports, millions of dollars, and threatened his followers with blackmail, beatings, and death in order for them to stay in Jonestown. Rather than the paradise some of his followers thought they were headed to, Jones ran the commune like a prison camp. On top of not being able to leave Jonestown, Jones's followers also were fed very little. He would try to alienate members of the cult from their families so that people feared him as the predator, but also knew he was essentially the only one who could provide for them. So he just screwed with these people's minds so much to the point where they were dependent on him, but scared of him. Jones regularly brought up dying for the cause to his followers. To amplify this phrase, Jones would stage practice mass suicides. What does that even mean? Well, we're about to get into it. Believe me. The followers were woken up at some point in the middle of the night on occasion, given a cup of red liquid, which they were told was poison, and were ordered to drink it. About 45 minutes after they drank the liquid, they were told that they weren't going to die and that they could go back to bed having passed a loyalty test. Like if they ever Why did they do it? (laughs) Because they're in a cult. (laughs) Well, they were scared of him too. Yeah. Yeah. Jones said that anyone who spoke badly of the commune or left slash tried to leave the commune deserved to die. Some other tactics Jones used in order to keep his followers on lockdown were the box, which was a coffin-shaped box that followers were placed in and put underground for their slights against the cult. He told them that there were American soldiers in the woods waiting to shoot at them if they tried to leave. And people who spoke out against Jones or the cult would sometimes be taken to the medical unit where he would torture the followers. Sometimes his torture involved live snakes. Other times he would lower children into a well. And he would also put people in drug-induced comas. He was a horrible person. Yeah. During this time, defectors spoke to the press about what was happening at Jonestown. A defector is just someone who's left the cult, by the way. Mm -hmm. During this time, defectors spoke to the press about what was happening at Jonestown. Finally, in November of 1978, Leo J. Ryan, a congressman from California, made the decision to investigate the People's Temple for himself. On the trip, he brought with staff, press members, and people concerned about their relatives in Jonestown. On November 18th, Ryan toured the compound with a film crew inviting any followers who wanted to leave to come with him. However, this rescue mission did not go the way Ryan thought it would. After leaving Jonestown, Ryan, his crew, and a few People's Temple defectors were attacked by People's Temple gunmen sent by Jones at an airstrip in Port Kaituma. <coughs> so there was, like, a big shooting. Like, they just started shooting at these people that were trying to, like, leave Viana. Mm-hmm. Ryan and four others, including three reporters, died in the shooting. Jones' paranoia sunk in back at the compound, and he feared that the survivors of the shooting would tell the authorities, so he decided to launch a plan that the followers had been practicing for. A mass suicide. To go through with the plan for mass suicide, cyanide and Valium were mixed into a batch of grape flavorade to make a lethal beverage. Also, I always thought it was Kool-Aid until like a couple years ago when I like looked it up, and it wasn't Kool-Aid. So everyone thinks they all drink Kool-Aid. It was knockoff Kool-Aid. Flavorade. What difference does it make they died? <laughs> it doesn't make a difference. I just thought it was Kool-Aid and I was like, how do you think the Kool-Aid brand is doing after this? <laughs> Skyrocketed. <laughs> Sales went up. 
Cups were distributed to the followers of Jim Jones. Those who refused to drink were forced to by armed guards. The first to die were the children. In the end, 913 followers, including 304 who were under the age of 18, died at Jonestown. Jim Jones, however, did not take part in the mass poisoning, opting to die with his inner circle around him by either being shot or shooting himself in the head. Bestie, you want to go out like a hero? Die with the rest of your congregation. Be a man. That's not what a man does, though. A man doesn't kill everybody you brought to an island. He was found on the floor of the main gathering area of the church near nurse Annie Moore and his wife, Marceline. Jones's sons, Jim Jones Jr. and Stephen Jones, however, were at a basketball game in the capital city of Georgetown when everyone participated in the mass suicide, effectively saving their lives. They only survived because they were not there and they were at a basketball game and i think it was stefan that said he was like i always knew basketball was going to save my life i just didn't think like it was going to literally save my life yeah or something along those lines that's not a direct quote roughly 90 former members made it out of jonestown or survived the mass suicide out of the thousands that were there only 90 live to tell the tale this guy is also where we get the phrase drinking the kool-aid referring usually to a person who believes wholeheartedly in a doomed plan because of the possible high rewards and that is my little tale he was only alive for like i thirty. he was born in 31 and died in 78 so he was only alive for like 47 years yeah he did all of this before he was 50 do not start early. If you are a serial killer, please go to a facility. If you are feeling homicidal tendencies, talk to someone about it. Make sure you are safe. <laughs> Don't start a cult. Don't drink the Kool-Aid. Especially not grape flavor. That's the worst flavor. <laughs> also, yeah, that was like the worst flavor. You couldn't have gave him like the red one. Watermelon. <laughs> Cherry. Cherry. <laughs> Blue raspberry. Grape kiwi. You gave him grape. That was the most brutal crime of all. Is you gave him grape. Anyway, that's my fun little tale for this. It is now Saturday morning. Anyways, that was our tale for the day. Um, tune in next week for a new one. Next week we do have a story planned, and it's not going to be chosen two days in advance. The Christmas special. So stay tuned for that. Um, as always, you can find us on Instagram at the graveyard shift pod 13. Yeah. We'll see you guys next week. We'll see you guys next week. Bye. Bye.